Hello and welcome to All Things Small Business, brought to you by DAU. I'm Ken Karka, DAU Small Business Learning Director. This series is offered as a continuing dialogue between government, industry, and academia on acquisition-related issues that impact small businesses who support the critical defense industrial base. Let's join today's conversation. Welcome to All Things Small Business. I'm your host, Anthony Rotolo, and this is the show where acquisition and small business meet. We bring together business owners, contract experts, policymakers, and stakeholders, and we explore the issues facing small business and acquisition professionals as they work together to overcome challenges in a government and defense context. With me for today's show is Dr. Daryl Sampy, CEO of Biofactura Inc., located in Frederick, Maryland. Dr. Sampy's company has been in business for 16 years in the biotechnology field. It was started by four engineers and scientists that came from a larger biotech firm. He is the only one of the original four that is still with the company. And this is a biotech firm. The company provides smallpox research and develops their own products. And they have supported the Army Medical Command at Fort Detrick, Maryland, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. They recently won a $67 million contract from BARDA. Well, with that, I want to say congratulations, and Dr. Sampi, welcome to All Things Small Business. Thank you, Anthony. Nice to be here. Very happy to have you with us. Dr. Sampi, before we get into some of the questions about how you've conducted business and how you've been successful working in the defense industrial base, I just want to start with the genesis of Biofactura. What was your vision for the company? What kind of good were you seeking to do in the world? So uh, as you mentioned earlier, the company was founded by four scientists and engineers who were at the time working for a larger uh, biopharmaceutical company in Maryland. Um, We were not uh, high-level executives in this company. We were all uh, on-the-floor engineers, at-the-bench scientists, doing science, taking processes and uh, scaling them up for Uh, clinical trial and and commercial manufacture. And we really believed uh, that we could do this this work better than than working for another company. We had some ideas about some some novel ways of manufacturing these kinds of biological drugs. And uh, we started pulling people together of like mind uh, at the company. This was not a a uh, company that was sanctioned by the large company. It was kind of an underground thing, if you will, uh, on our own time. And uh, took a couple of years of incubating that idea, writing a business plan, uh, starting to look at ways we could actually depart uh, the company that we were working for and start making money and paying salaries very quickly after we uh, after we left and and uh, basically quit our full time job. And and that's uh, that's a tough thing to do. Um, we you know when I left the company, I had about a two month severance package runway, 
And in two months, I needed to start bringing in cash. And so there was a kind of a gun to our heads. And we were out on that high wire with uh, not much of a net. But that's how you start a big thing from uh, the beginning idea. We were able to connect with colleagues and friends in uh, government labs. And this will probably go to some other questions we have in the, the government contracting and collaboration space. But those kinds of connections really led to uh, where we are now, to be honest, 16 years later. That's remarkable. And you were all specialists. So that adage about working in the business versus working on the business must have been a challenge, you know, going from someone who is at the bench to someone developing and expanding and trying to grow a business. I wonder if you could speak to that idea. Sure. No, uh, that that is true. We were all technical people. Um, we put together a team of of technical technicians, if you will, that covered the spectrum of developing these kinds of products, these biological drugs. So we had people at the very early stage, kind of that research side, and then people all the way at the uh, manufacturing end of the uh, spectrum. And and I was uh, I'm personally um, in the middle there, transitioning things from R and D into manufacturing. So with the group we assembled, we were able to cover most of the technical aspects and and learn what what the gaps were that we needed to fill. But yeah, putting together a business and then talking about business plans, it was really learning on the job for me. I don't have a, a an MBA or a business background, but certainly a trial by fire over the last 16 years, uh, raising money. A lot of work on uh, early on grants and uh, SBIR, which we'll talk about, small business innovative research program with the government. Um, but you know, you just have to get out there, start uh, meeting people, and uh, learn as quickly as you can. Absolutely. And like you said, you were working without a net, and necessity is the mother of invention. So you were a quick study, pretty much do or die as a, a new venture. Before we get into some of those questions about the SBIR and other ways that you develop the business, just tell me a little more about the purpose of the firm. You, you are specialists in smallpox medications. I'm just trying to get a, a feel for your contribution to the field from a human perspective. Sure. So our base when we started this company was really in taking early stage research that had been identified as potential a drug, for instance, and then translating that through uh, process development, scale up, and uh, manufacturing what's called GMP or good manufacturing practices, which is the regulation that governs how biologic drugs and other drugs are manufactured by the FDA. Uh, and by the federal regulations. And we had all of that experience under our belts uh, from working for larger companies. What we found as we built out the company is we we actually began doing contract work for other smaller or even medium-sized companies, leveraging our skill set to solve their problems. Those were pretty early days. But a big shift happened when we connected with um, a friend, a former colleague who was working at Fort Detrick at the biodefense labs there at uh, USAMRID, as it's known. 
and this was where they were working on a smallpox drug that we uh, ended up collaborating on with them and ended up uh, winning some grants and then eventually this large contract years later. But, but really where we excel is taking our platform of, of development and manufacturing and feeding it with high value products that save lives or protect the country or reduce healthcare costs, which we're doing now with what are called biosimilar drugs, which are generic biological drugs. So it all feeds into development, scale up and manufacturing. And we have innovation in that space that allows us to rapidly move these products from early stage to clinic to hopefully an FDA approval. Has this new environment with the urgency of COVID and, you know, we're seeing headlines like Operation Warp Speed and obviously this whole arena has been impacted and there's so much urgency. Has that touched your world? We did uh, and have done a bit of work in uh, COVID R&D, but in general, we haven't done a lot. We've been very focused, as you mentioned, on our our BARDA program, which is the smallpox therapeutic drug we're developing for uh, for the U.S. government, for the civilian population. Um, interestingly, uh, what we did see is years ago, back, you know, 15 years ago, when we started uh, collaborating with uh, Fort Detrick um, on smallpox, we were looking at building uh, a drug that's a combination of what are called monoclonal antibodies. These are proteins that uh, your body makes in response to invading organisms like viruses and bacteria and such. But people and and companies have been able to harness those, uh, make those in uh, manufacturing processes, and then use those as, as drugs. Early days, 15 years ago, using antibodies to treat virus infections and now like covid you're saying um that was a vi- that was unheard of and and probably not uh that appreciated at the time but what i've seen over the years and and you've seen this now with for instance regeneron and lily's products for covid-19 these are exactly the kind of products that we were um investigating 15 years ago which are combinations of monoclonal antibodies that will neutralize and treat um, virus infections like COVID-19. So what I've seen with the COVID outbreak and what I've seen with the rapid development and um, deployment of these kinds of products is validation of the approaches we were looking at probably earlier than most, is what I'd say. And this is the same approach we're using for the smallpox therapeutic. It's a combination of two or three antibodies, we're, we're still uh, determining that, that'll be used to, to treat a smallpox infection if that ever happened. Well, that's a very interesting through line you just described. So there was a precedent, a lot of groundwork laid for the successes we're seeing now that we're hearing about vaccines that are 95% effective in the headlines right now. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is you know, with these vaccines, especially the ones from Pfizer and from Moderna, um, if these come out and do what they think they're going to do with this kind of 95 plus percent uh, protection, this is going to absolutely revolutionize uh, vaccine um, manufacturing and um, 
and approaches to developing vaccine. This is this thing had this this outbreak, this pandemic has has accelerated um, a lot of innovation that probably would have taken another ten years to get to this point. And in one year, you, you've seen some of the the approaches that have never been tried, like these two vaccines. These are mRNA vaccines. Those have never been approved before. They are and do look very safe, but the efficacy has never been tested in these huge clinical trials like we're seeing with COVID-19. And uh, I think it's, you know, that's a really, you know, big silver lining we're seeing for future threats or other infectious diseases that we, we need, desperately need vaccines for. It really is. And from a business perspective, it just fundamentally alters the expectations for speed to market. So that's bound to be just, again, fundamentally an impact to the way we do business in the industry. So it's very interesting to watch right now. I appreciate your insights on that. Now, turning to that question of how you grew the business, how did your company benefit from the SBIR contracts? And if you could tell us about ones that you've pursued or are pursuing to provide us a little bit of insight into that. Sure. So uh, the Small Business Innovative Research Program, or SBIR, is a program that is mandated by Congress. It's a law on the books, and it basically um, dictates that all federal agencies with contracting, I think, in in excess of $100 billion, I can't remember the cutoff, that they must set aside a certain percentage of that extramural budget for small businesses. And I think it's around 3%, give or take right now. So that 3%, that small business SBIR allocation is then managed by each of the agencies. And, and, you know, we've participated in uh, NIH's SBIR programs. We've won several DOD SBIR program, specifically Army SBIR was the first ones that we got into. But there are other agencies that have SBIR programs as well that uh, have this budget. It is a critical program for science companies, for companies that are developing technology. When most investors, you know, equity investors or venture capitalists are not going to touch you, you're just too risky, too early. And even though you have a great idea, unproven, I mean, at the time when we started the company, none of us had connections to, to venture capital or, or, or uh, sophisticated investors. And if they don't know you, they're probably not going to write you a check, certainly not at the early stage we were in. So this program, SBIR, is, is absolutely essential. We were able to connect with it through a collaboration, again, with the Fort Detrick labs, with the Army labs. I think that's another essential, very important part of looking at grants and SBIR contracts, having an active collaboration with a federal lab, as we did prior to applying for an SBIR uh, award, I think was incredibly important. And, and it helps us align with the research and the work that the government lab and the government is doing and their needs. 
such that when we do respond to a, a solicitation for a, an SBIR contractor grant, that we're highly responsive to the topics that they offer. And uh, we can basically turn out a proposal that meets their needs and is eventually funded. Um, and that is what we did. We were successful with our smallpox drug development program in those very early days. We got an SBIR phase one. Uh, we per- we did well with that work, which is a very short six-month timeline for a phase one. We got what's called a phase one option, which was a four-month period of time that bridges you to the phase two grant, which we got, which is about a two-year timeline. And then beyond that, we we there were other programs in the in, at the army um, at the time which were phase two enhancements and some others. So all some we were able to take this initial fifty thousand dollar award for a phase one and turn it into about three million dollars worth of funding over a five year period. A key to that success was the tailoring of your proposal to a, an active federal program is, I think, the, the key highlight I heard from that. Absolutely correct. Yes. If you, if, you, if you put in something that's not in line with their interest or their needs, chances are you're probably not going to get the funding. Now, turning our attention to grants, have you pursued government grants, and is that similar or dissimilar to the SBIR process that you just described? So as I mentioned, for SBIR, it it is um, a program that is implemented by different agencies. So uh, as I mentioned, we got an Army SBIR. They use a contract mechanism. Their process of how they issue topics to respond to and how they field and review proposals is very different from the way, for instance, NIH operates in the SBIR program. They use a grant mechanism versus a contract, that that being the NIH, and they review it in a very different way than the DOD, the Army does. And you have to approach those programs very differently. Um, I've found, maybe it's, you know, my background is a a chemical engineer and being a practical problem solver uh, type of guy, but I've found working with the DOD and with the Army is a little more straightforward because they have certain needs and requirements for the warfighter. We have ways of solving their problems and meeting their needs, and we you know, propose a solution to a problem. And if that's met with a good review, there's a good chance you're going to win an award. With the NIH, it's a lot more about science or applied research. The review is done by an external panel consisting of some industry people, but a lot of academics, uh, university people. And so you're at the whim and will in your review process of people that are interested more in basic research and and science versus solving an important problem. I think the chances of winning a grant from NIH, in my opinion, are a lot lower than if you understand and, and work a proposal through the, the channels at, at uh, DOD. Again, because it's just a more aligning what your proposal is with their need and their requirement versus 
putting something out there that's intriguing to scientists, um, which who knows who's going to review it. That's the other thing with NIH is these review panels, basically they pass out these uh, proposals to a handful of three or four people. And depending on who is the reviewer is whether you're going to get that grant or not. So one guy doesn't like what you're doing or thinks it's different than what he's maybe doing in his lab. You're not going to get it. And that's kind of tough. It sounds like you're dealing in the grant process with more of a set of abstractions as compared with an RFP where you're just you're aligning their requirements with some very targeted specific solutions. Very, very different. So I can understand that that difference that you're describing. Now, what we have done in the grant world that uh, for us works quite a bit better is we align ourselves with other companies that may already have been successful in winning NIH grants. And, and we actually have a subcontract right now with one of those companies. So these could be much smaller companies than, than our company that have some great breakthrough research, but they don't know how to take that research and do what we do, develop it, scale it up, and manufacture it for a clinical trial, for instance. They don't have that capability. That's a very complex and expensive thing to build, which we have built. And we partner and and do subcontracts with with, uh, NIH grant winners all the time, manufacturing these kinds of products for them for, for their programs. So that's another way through subcontracting that we've we've uh, we've been able to bring in government dollars through other people's awarded grants. I appreciate that insight. Now, in the acquisition world, we're trying to move faster. We're trying to keep up with the cutting edge so that we are able to contract and do business and not fall behind and absorb new technology into the Department of Defense. This leads me to a question about things like other transaction authorities, where we're using these newer kinds of contract mechanisms to do business quicker. Have you been involved with that type of process? We have. So uh, these OTAs, as you mentioned, are outside of the normal uh, contracting process. It's a it's a different mechanism. Typically, what's uh, done with these OTAs is a consortium is established, um, and there are a number now of uh, OTA consortia that focus usually on a you know specific field. We are a member of uh, one of those, which is the Medical Chem Bio Rad Nuke or CBRN Defense Consortium, so the MCDC. And the MCDC gets basically these requests for prototype from uh, the DOD in our space, which is biodefense for for biofactura. And if these solicitations that come through are only, if you're not a member, you can't uh, you can't propose a response for these particular solicitations. And memberships, I think, five hundred dollars a year for MCDC, so it's it's not expensive. That helps with you know them managing this contract. The other thing it provides is speed. It's much quicker, as you mentioned, to turn around. Um, an award for an RFP through one of these OTAs. 
and very much encouraged is it allows you to collaborate with other companies that have complementary capabilities to meet the needs of an RFP. So if we we partnered up with a company that could do fill and finish of the product, or we partnered with a company that did maybe some animal research that we needed for a particular project, these could be all consortia members. And, and MCDC consortia, for instance, is pretty large. I think there's 50 to 100 companies of all sizes. So you can also use it to partner up with much larger firms in the space or be a subcontractor to a larger firm's uh, proposal to some of these larger opportunities. So it, it really does provide a, a faster way, but also a very collab- a, a big collaboration opportunity. And for me, collaboration has always been uh, essential in uh, building the business, not just collaborating with the government labs, which we did at the very beginning, but also collaborating with other small companies, larger companies, that is just absolutely critical. Yeah, that's a great answer. And just from the, the government to small business perspective, it's such an important win-win right now because the government is trying to do business with firms like you and then for, uh, firms that are on the edge and are just trying to, to win an award are not as discouraged on just giving up on the whole traditional acquisition life cycle where it, it could take just an excessive amount of time. So again, a, a big win-win. Now, before we, we hit record, we were speaking a little bit about the importance of storytelling, really, how it's very important for a company like yours to have a good story and how it can make a difference and influence the outcome of legislation. I wonder if you could speak to us about that a bit. Sure. So um, in again, in the probably first few years of building the company and realizing how important the SBIR program was to us and to other companies at that early point, we and we're close to Washington, D.C., about an hour away, um, which is convenient. We ended up going down there and uh, advocating for uh, the reauthorization of the SBIR program. That program isn't perpetual. I believe it reauthorizes every 10 years. And, and when that comes up, you need to fight for its survival and its importance to small business. I mean, there's a lot of money there, obviously, if it's 3% of a, a budget like uh, DODs, you're talking, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so a lot of people are interested in that funding. And um, those may not be completely aligned with small business interests. So when that came up a few years back, I I and several other small companies that had benefited from SBIR went down, met with legislators, met with staffers. And that's where I really learned that small or even single people can influence legislation and, um, and really benefit their situation as a small business, as small business as a whole. I think we did really well during that advocate time for SBIR reauthorization. We were able to get it reauthorized in a favorable way for smaller companies, which I think was critical for the program and for new companies. And it also taught me that a great heartfelt story 
to legislators can be a really powerful thing. After that, uh, as I mentioned with the SBIR contract that we had with the smallpox, I was able to take those skills and uh, and submit some program or some projects to our state delegation, Maryland State, uh, for a defense appropriations earmark, and uh, we ended up winning two one million dollar earmarks back in I think two thousand seven and two thousand eight that were aligned with the uh, the smallpox program. And once again, I didn't use a lobbying firm. I didn't, you know, it wasn't a K Street thing. It was me as the CEO talking about an important program that we were developing for the uh, for the warfighter, for the DOD and for for the country and uh, resonated and uh, uh, was beneficial as well. So um, telling the right story is uh, is a is an, is a powerful thing. It really is. What were the elements, though, of, the, of that particular story? If you could kind of just give us an idea of how you put the light bulb over heads and maybe tra- had the emotional transfer in addition to the the informational transfer of what you were asking for. Sure. So so Maryland has been vying for years to be a, and and is a hub for biotechnology. Um, San Francisco and Boston are kind of the number one and two areas in the nation for for biotech, if you will. But uh, Maryland and, and some other regions are always in competition to become that uh, in, in the running with the, the two big guys. And so appealing to uh, the delegation's interest in expanding biotech in, in the state, that was obviously well met. We're, we're a, uh, a group of people that uh, were um, formerly with a big company in Maryland that has done a lot for the state as far as employment and bringing that, uh, that hub that they want for biotech into the area. And, you know, when you go out there and talk about, uh, you know, we're, we could be the next big company in Maryland to uh, be a base of employment and bringing in these kinds of businesses and even attracting other larger companies into the state, that's a story they want to, you know, that, that makes good sense to them and their constituents that they serve. The other part is, I think, just the, you know, being an authentic uh, founder of a company I believe resonates better than than the lobbyists they probably hear from every you know every day that are you know okay I'm 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 here for this company but oh now I'm here for that company I'm here for that you know it it probably gets a little old but um so I I think that makes a difference as well. Yeah, I think so. The word you used authentic it's probably why we resonate with someone like Steve Jobs famously when you hear from the person with the vision and who can sell the benefits of what they're doing because they are the one with the original vision. Yep. Dr. Sampi, I want to go back to that mention of biosimilars. If you could just expound upon what that is. This is a new field. I think some of our listeners haven't heard of it. Sure. Um, and, and I'm going to tie that in with um, another term that in our early days with uh, DOD contract work, uh, we, we learned, which is dual use. So dual use is, can you take a product or a technology that's um, very useful in solving a defense problem or a warfighter need, 
and also use that same technology for non-defense commercial use. And that's exactly what we did and how we transitioned from doing biodefense work into doing what's called biosimilars development, which are generic biological drugs. In the earliest days of the company, we, um, myself and one of the co-founders, invented a new method of how to manufacture these kinds of biological drugs. So we filed patent. We've gotten several patents awarded over the years for this technology and some follow-on ideas that, that make it even better. And this platform is a way to rapidly produce these kinds of drugs, which obviously is of interest these days with COVID. But, but in, in general, quickness and uh, nimble to get a product from late R&D to the clinic, which is where this fits, is an important thing. We developed that platform in those early days with the smallpox SBIR contract. It allowed us to, to mature it and, and get it into a really a commercial quality and commercial level of productivity and also commercial quality of product that, was, that was, it was producing. And we realized some years later after we, we began development that there was a very interesting opportunity in this world of biosimilars, which is Uh, as I mentioned, a generic biological drug. This is very different than generics from back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, in that uh, biological drugs are not chemical drugs per se, in that we don't mix A to B to get to C in 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 a bucket. We actually genetically engineer living mammalian cells to become basically small factories to produce the kinds of drugs we make, like antibody drugs we mentioned before. You can't make an antibody by mixing chemicals together. You can only make it by using and leveraging these living cell factories to make them because they're so complex. They're very large in molecular size, and they're incredibly complex. And so Our platform, which is centered around uh, mammalian cell culture production, um, allows you to make these kinds of products. We used it for the DOD early, and we found it was a really great match for developing these biosimilar generic drugs. And we've now taken that over the last several years um, and and attracted uh, sophisticated investors, including institutional investors. We're actually um, raising. Uh, $30 million right now in a Series C round to develop our own generic biologics, our own biosimilars, the first of which is entering a clinical trial in April of next year. So this is the dual use that the government always wants to see where you start in the defense space, but then you find a really great place, a, a really great opportunity outside of defense to take that technology and apply it, and now produce a product that hopefully will reduce healthcare costs considerably. These drugs, uh, these biological drugs, are the most expensive drugs in the world. Some are uh, upwards of uh, over a half a million dollars per patient per year for the drug, which is crazy, but true. Um, And we can come in with uh, some of these products. The product we're developing right now costs 
about $50,000 a patient per year. And uh, we can come in perhaps cut that number in half with a uh, a biosimilar in, in the future as we get that down the road. So that can have a big effect on the spiraling costs of healthcare here in the U.S. It's a very dramatic and very intriguing space that you're working in. Dr. Sampi, thank you for your time today. This has been very enlightening. As we close out our discussion, I wanted to ask if you have any advice for other small companies in a space like yours pursuing small business innovation research contracts. Sure. So important things to consider when you start a company uh, and build a company one, choose your partners wisely, of course. Um, it's it's like a marriage, like they say, and that is true. There will be uh, disagreements as, as time goes by, so that's important. Then hire the right people as you move down the line. Um, when you get outside of the founders, you need to find employees that are of that entrepreneurial mindset like you are even you know we're we're almost 30 people now which is still small but it's a lot bigger than we used to be uh even a year ago so uh i hire people that i usually feel uh think and feel uh the same way i do and the passion that i do about the work they do uh, beyond just a paycheck obviously so that's important is is people it's the most important thing as you build a business there's nothing more important um, and then outside of your company, the collaborations, as I mentioned, our first real collaboration with Fort Detrick with the government lab led to, uh, I believe, the the award of the SBIR contract that, that really got us started in developing our own products and going, you know, hopefully after uh, this uh, COVID-19 thing is is resolved, Going out and meeting others and government and attending uh, seminars and conferences, really important to meet people, talk to people about what you're doing, learn from them. Um, networking, it's, it's just absolutely important. That you, I have found uh, incredible things in just meeting the right person at the right time. I can tell you my my current chairman of the board and and original lead investor uh I met him 6 years ago when I was pitching a group of what are called angel investors which are basically rich people who have money to uh to write you a check versus going to Vegas maybe I guess mm. um but but I met uh, uh our current chairman and chief medical officer Dr. Hausfeld he was a, a retired surgeon and into investing and uh, looking at these technologies at an event. And he's become my, my absolute, you know, uh, business partner. And um, he, he helps me more than anybody that I found uh, out there in, even in the early days with my original founders. So he's, he's a founder for sure. And I met him because I was at the right place at the right time. Um, So getting out there is important uh, once we can get out there again. That's what I'll say. Uh, I think being honest and obviously and 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 transparent and trying to communicate your vision to your people and your collaborators and the people you do business with goes the long way. 
valuable advice on that point about being in the right place at the right time. You know, we hear about lucky breaks, but there's a lot to be said for making your own luck by getting out there, as you said. And I think if others follow that pattern, they will do well. My guest today has been Dr. Daryl Sampi. The company is Biofactora Inc. Dr. Sampi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Take care. This is Ken Karkoff once more. I want to thank our guests for participating in today's conversation. Your insights and perspectives will surely help our listeners. And an invitation to our listeners, if you'd like to participate as a guest in a future conversation, please reach out to me at kenneth.karkoff at dau.edu. Till next time, stay engaged and collaborate across your networks. Everyone's talents and skills are needed within the defense industrial base as we fulfill the national defense strategy together. Mm -hmm.